Please join me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that as we look ahead to our continuing study in the book of the Revelation, the lion and the lamb, seemingly very contrasting, but we see the gentleness and we see the power all at once. Thank you for granting to us a glimpse into the future to help to purify our lives now, to be a blessing to each one of us and to be an encouragement. We thank you for what you're going to show us this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Does the church go through the tribulation? This is part two of our study, and I'd like to ask, if you will, please, to turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, and I'll begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. And I will review a little bit in just a moment where we were last week. But for now, listen to these words as we think in terms of the rapture of the Lord Jesus. We think about what's happening at the end. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, let me stop and ask you a quick question. What word do we give to what I just read? We have one word that didn't appear in the text, but we call it what? The rapture. And I think it's pretty clear here. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, and it appears that there's a conspiracy going on here. That there are some people who are trying to get people all upset, all rattled, thinking that they're already in this tribulation period. They're already in the day of the Lord. And so what the Apostle Paul wants to tell the Thessalonians, you don't have to worry. You're not in the tribulation. And don't worry if all these people are trying to tell you that it's true. They're trying to even falsify reports coming from us, even written reports coming from us. But it's not true, and I'm going to tell you why it's not true. And so this is how it goes on. Don't want you to be shaken in mind or alarmed, and those are very severe words. If, if we were to take them apart, we'd see how severe they were. But either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, and let me stop to interrupt just for a second, also known as the Antichrist or the beast, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him. That's restraining this Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, it's not time yet for him to be revealed. He'd love to come back right now, but there's a restraining influence. There's a factor that will prevent that from happening. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore... 
God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now keep that in mind. We're going to be getting there and we'll be getting there very briefly. But I wanted for us to take a look at what we call where we are right now looking forward to the Lord's coming. We call it a pre-tribulation rapture. According to what we believe to be God's calendar, we're living now in what may be referred to as the church age. This is the time that the church, a mystery in the Old Testament, but, but here now from the day of Pentecost until the Lord Jesus comes back to take us to be with him, then we believe will be a seven-year tribulation period during which it's unparalleled atrocities going on in our world. It will be absolutely horrible, like nothing that we've ever known. And we don't believe that the church, that is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be there during that time. We do believe that Jesus will come, take us to be with him, seven years of tribulation, then he will come back with his saints to the earth. We call that the return. And that will usher in a thousand-year millennial period, and we'll get to that in our study of Revelation, a great time uh, prior to the eternal state. That pre-tribulation rapture, if you look up top here, if you're able to see what's on the screen, we have the place of the rapture here before seven years of tribulation. We've got the rapture. We're joining Christ in the air. Seven years, seven horrible years later, the return of the Lord Jesus in glory, and then that begins that kingdom age or that millennial period. So you can see here, pre-tribulation rapture means that Jesus comes for us, the church, his bride, believers in Christ. He comes for us before all of the horror of the tribulation. We saw that there are other views. That's not the only view, but they all have to do with the timing of when Jesus comes back for the saints. There's a mid-tribulation rapture, which is pretty self-evident. That refers to the fact that Jesus may come back during the middle of the tribulation period. There's also a post-tribulation rapture view that he comes back at the end of the tribulation period. There is a pre-wrath rapture view, and we went over all of this last Sunday night, which basically has maybe five and a half years, roughly. It's some time that is between a mid-trapture and a mid-tribulation rapture and a post-tribulation rapture. There is also a view that's called the partial rapture, and that is that only those who are ready will go up at the beginning of the tribulation. The rest who would not be ready, those who are not maybe elite saints, would have to wait for later on. Now, if you want to look again, uh, we've got all of those views mentioned here. You see where the rapture is indicated. You can see the timing of it here. Uh, pre-trib at the beginning of the tribulation, mid-trib where that takes place, post-trib at the end, pre-wrath rapture sometime in the middle here of the last three and a half years. Uh, All of that, this final seven-year tribulation period, there is a lot of ink and a lot of paper that has gone into these views over the course of the years. The scholars and theologians love to debate when this will take place. I have grown up in a pre-tribulation rapture view, and the more that I study it, the more I'm absolutely convinced that that's the view that the scriptures teach us. And I found out most people hope that I'm right. And if you don't, then you don't understand what the tribulation is all about, because we don't want to be going through that. 
as we studied, we talked about, are we ready for signs? And and some of those signs would be if the tribulation came before we were taken, we would have to be prepared for antichrist. Uh, Bomb shelters, getting ready for gas attacks and all sorts of things. Uh, But according to scripture, that's not where we want to be. We want to be waiting for Jesus to come back, not antichrist to show himself in all the horrors of that tribulation. We looked at some reasons from the scripture for a pre-tribulation rapture. The church is seen in heaven during the tribulation. And we went over that in, I think, some greater detail. And I'm not going to take time to do that tonight, but just to suffice in mentioning that particular view. We also have seen that the church is not destined to experience God's wrath. That's made clear in several scriptures. One of the most notable ones is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also saw it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We saw the way the Lord dealt with individuals, how he took Noah out of the flood and protected him, how he took Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then on the heels of that is 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God doesn't want us to be involved in that wrath. We talked about the great day of his wrath and all of these scriptures in Revelation that describe the tribulation as being a time of God's wrath. We're not going to be involved with God's wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw where the church is protected by God's promise to Philadelphia-type Christians in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And again, I'm not going to go back there. Uh, But Philadelphia-type Christians were promised that they would be kept out of the hour of trial that would come upon the whole earth. That hasn't happened yet. There have been trials on parts of the earth, but the whole earth all at once, those Philadelphia-type Christians will be kept out of that. The church, as I mentioned earlier, is looking for Jesus, not for signs, and we went into that in somewhat of great length as well. And tonight... Uh, we've, we saw some scriptures with regard to that too. But tonight, I'm going to carry it a little bit further. The church goes when the Holy Spirit goes. Now, what do I mean by that? For back in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, if you look at verses 6 through 8, verse 6 again, and you know what is restraining him. So there's something restraining this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. Something's holding him back. He has to be revealed in his time. He wants to jump the gun. He wants to come back, obviously, before then, but he's not able to do that. It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Talking about he personal pronoun. So who is the one who restrains lawlessness? Down through the centuries, there have been those who think that all of this is being written about something that already took place on the planet. It's not futuristic. It's something that took place. And so they will posit some names. One of them was Nero. They thought that maybe Nero was the one who was restraining this man of lawlessness, which doesn't make any sense to those of us who believe in a pre-trib rapture, who believe that uh, all the events talking about the return of Christ are still future, that they haven't happened in the past. Seneca is another name that 
some have argued through the centuries. Seneca was a philosopher. He was a writer, an orator, a statesman back at the time of Nero, the early years of Nero. He came out of exile, and he and some of his friends virtually ran Rome. They got a lot of respect, and some people say, well, it's going to be him. Uh, or it was him, in fact, that this doesn't talk about the future. It talks about something that's already taken place in the past. Others will say it's Satan. If you examine this closely in context, you can see that it can't be Satan who's holding basically himself back. Um, that doesn't make any sense at all, but there are those who will posit that. Some say it's law and order and Rome. Uh, the government is the restraining influence and holding back the man of lawlessness. Uh, again, if you, if you examine the context, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But others will say, could it be the church? And I believe in one sense it could be the church, but we're talking about he, and we're talking about the he being the Holy Spirit. He is the one that I believe the scriptures make a whole lot of sense if we were to say he's the one who's holding back evil. And he's doing that also through his church. When the church leaves at the rapture, the Holy Spirit indwells the members of the church. They're going to be going at once. And I believe that he is the restrainer. Right now, this moment, he's the restraining influence in our world. He's the one that's indwelling the church, but it says in the text, he'll be taken out of the way. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit himself is going to be taken out of the world completely. Uh, the Lord Jesus declared that the church is going to be the salt of the earth. At least the believers are going to be that. That's a preservative from corruption. In that sense, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. He'll still be here in his omnipresence to convict the world and save multitudes during the tribulation. But as the restrainer who's resident in the church, when we leave, he will leave in that sense. When the church is gone, corruption is speedily going to come to the planet. There won't be the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Can you imagine how bad the world would be if there weren't any Christians in it right now? If God the Holy Spirit were not working through individuals. Also, believe that the church is not to be deceived, we're told. The rebellion must occur first. Look at Second Timothy or Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three. We read this, let no one deceive you. These people that thought they were already living through the tribulation. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. What is the rebellion that comes first? Well, there are those who teach that the rebellion is a huge apostasy, a falling away from the faith, that we're going to see the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, and with him, the tribulation period, we're going to see that come, but not until there's this huge falling away from the faith, this huge apostasy from the faith. And most of the people that I would say are in the conservative evangelical camp will, would believe that that's what it is. I personally am dubious that that's what's referred to here, that it's some type of apostasy. I don't know how you can measure an apostasy, a falling away from faith, different than what we have seen in our world down through the centuries, as people continually are falling away from the faith. What major falling away event could be referred to here? There are some who believe, and I think this, is, this merits at least our thinking about this, they believe the word rebellion here in, in verse 3 actually refers to the rapture. This man of lawlessness won't be revealed until the rapture comes. And if that's true, 
that means definitely we're not going to be here during the tribulation period, if that's, if that's the sign that is there. A man by the name of Dr. E. Schuyler English is a leading proponent of this view, and here's his reasoning. The words in the Greek language, two words for this idea of rebellion, are he apostasia, and he says the meaning of a noun is generally determined by the root meaning of the verb from which the noun is formed in the Greek language. And the noun form of the verb comes from the Greek verb aphistemi. And if you see that word aphistemi and you study that word through, which I've done, it's translated 27 times in the New Testament. And every time you see it, it's not referring to an apostasy from the faith. It's referring to a departure, a leaving. A couple of examples the devil left him. It's talking about what happened after Jesus' temptation. The devil left him. It's someone going from a place to another place. The angel left him in Acts 12. Uh, talking again in Acts, he had withdrawn from them. Paul withdrew from them. They withdrew. Pleaded with the Lord that it should not leave me, the apostle Paul says of a burden he had. Men deprived of the truth. Uh, so we see the word deserted and taken and turned away, but mo- most often it's depart or departed. You don't see the idea of an apostasy anywhere. You don't see a falling away from the faith. You see simply a departure. So this man of lawlessness cannot come until there's a departure, till the departure comes. What could be a better departure than the rapture of the Lord Jesus? So Dr. English believes the word here refers to a departure of a person or persons, uh, namely the the rapture of the church. And again, if so, that's a compelling argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. There's something else, too, and that is that the church will not be on a yo-yo. Now, what do I mean by that? The church will not be on a yo-yo. Well, why a rapture at all if the post-tribulation view is correct? Because then the rapture and the return of Christ would be one and the same. Believers would go up only to return again right away on a yo-yo. They'd have to take a U-turn. And if you look again, if you look again behind us, you can see if the rapture and the return were one and the same at the end of the tribulation period, then a lot of scripture is going to have to be reinterpreted because there is a big difference between the rapture and the return of Christ. And let me just go quickly through some of these reasons that the rapture and the return are two separate events. At the rapture, we're told, the saints are going to meet Christ in the air. At the return, Christ returns to the earth, not meeting us in the air. At the rapture, the Mount of Olives is untouched. At the return, the Mount of Olives is split, we're told in the scriptures. At the rapture, our bodies go to heaven. At the return, the body comes to earth. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the return, Christ comes with his saints. At the rapture, the world is not judged and sin gets worse. At the return, the world is judged and sin is dealt with. The rapture is not preceded by detailed signs or warnings. The return is preceded by specific detailed signs or warnings. The rapture concerns only the saved. The return concerns the saved and the lost. Do you see the point that I'm making by that? If the rapture and the return had to be one and the same, if, they had, if we have to move, whoops, wrong button. 
I got so excited. I... Anyway, use your imagination. You remember that was there. If the rapture and the return are one and the same, then thank you. <laughs> then we've got a situation where um, we've got pre-tribulation rapture view. We've got the rapture is going to move all the way over to here. And the rapture and the return of Christ are going to become one and the same, which makes absolutely no sense with these other scriptures. So a couple of other very quick points. The church will be gathered together with Jesus, we're told in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. We read that, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, and then it goes on from there. But the church will be gathered together with Jesus. And the word gathering here in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews 10.25 when it talks about the church being gathered together. And a, a quotation here from John MacArthur, he says, this is referring to a special gathering together, a special coming together of the church, a unique one, separate from anything else. And he says 2 Thessalonians 2.1 has a great amount of weight for being that gathering, that would be the rapture. And then one other point that I'd like to make tonight, and that is the church is pictured in the Jewish wedding ceremony. This is not proof positive, but it is a great illustration of what happens with the bride of Christ. In John 14, Jesus spoke some incredibly comforting words. We've seen them before. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We're 21st century Gentiles. We miss out on the original disciples, how they would hear and understand what Jesus had just said. What he has just described is a Jewish wedding. And that wedding is something that we still look forward to with the church, the bride of Christ, and that's coming. Here's the terminology Jesus used of the Jewish wedding ceremony. Once at that time, a man and a woman were betrothed to each other. The man would return to his father's house, and he would add on a new room. When the room was nearing completion, he'd send a friend to tell the bride the time for the wedding was approaching. My wife is so happy that we don't have that custom because I'd still be building that room. <laughs> she knows how handy I am not. <laughs> but the bride in the meantime would get ready for her husband but rarely knew the precise moment of his arrival. It was part of the suspense, part of the adventure, part of the romance for the event that she'd wait without knowing the precise day or hour that he would come back to take her to be with him at his house. But finally, the day would come, and the groom would go forth to claim his bride. His friends went with him and made a lot of noise, blowing trumpets, shouting to let everyone know the time for the wedding had finally come. When he arrived, there would be a great feast, the wedding supper, after which the man would take his wife into the new room he'd made, and they would stay sequestered there for, note this, seven days, after which they emerged and he'd present her to the community, as his beloved. 
We believe that that's how the rapture is going to occur. We're now betrothed to Christ. He's gone to prepare our chamber. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. We don't know the day or the hour of his return. We know the times and the seasons. We can see some things starting to develop. He sent some of his friends, we can call them prophets, to describe the times and the seasons. When the time is ripe, he will come back accompanied by much noise, and you can include the trumpets in there. Then he'll take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll be sequestered with him in heaven for that seven years of the tribulation. When he comes again, emerging from heaven in glory, we come with him to rule and to reign for a thousand-year period. These are among many reasons. I've just chosen nine reasons why I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I didn't want to keep going. You could go into the 20s and 30s of some of those reasons. But pre-tribulationism is the only view that allows a literal interpretation of all the Old and New Testament passages on the tribulation. The other views have to take a spiritualized or allegorical view. It's the only view that gives a clear distinction between the church and Israel. And it's the best understanding of Daniel's 70 weeks of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And we'll talk about that later on in our study, Lord willing. So that's an attempt to be able to share with you words about the coming of the Lord Jesus. If that's truly next on God's calendar, the Lord Jesus could come back at any moment. There's nothing stopping him. If some of the other views are true, then we've got to wait for some of those other signs to happen. But uh, pre-tribulation rapture view means we look forward to the coming of Jesus, not the coming of Antichrist to wreak havoc with those who are on the earth. Let's pray together and thank the Lord for that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we're all agreed that Jesus is coming for us. And there are sincere individuals who don't exactly believe that same timing, but we're all in it together when we say the Lord Jesus will be back again. So we thank you for that. And thank you for the encouraging hope that that is, the blessed hope, the purifying hope. May it cause some of us to awaken Awaken to the fact that we want to live lives that are pleasing to you when the Lord Jesus comes back to take us. So help us to that end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.